Federal Drive is presented by GEHA, Government Employees Health Association, proudly providing health and dental benefits to federal employees and their families. Visit GEHA.com. The big change has taken place in how the military tries sexual assault cases. Special trial counsel offices are now responsible for handling such cases and not the chain of command in which the case might have originated. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin said these offices are now fully operational. Austin called this the most important reform to the Uniform Code of Military Justice since its creation in 1950. Federal News Network's Anastasia Obis has details. Anastasia, why did this come about now? I think this was the fulfillment of legislation of a couple years back. What exactly is going on? This new organization within the Department of Defense, known as the Offices of Special Trial Counsel, it's now fully responsible for investigating and prosecuting sexual assault cases. Sexual assault crimes are not the only ones that are going to be covered. The office will also be taking on stalking cases, domestic violence, kidnapping, and murder cases. There is a total of 13 criminal offenses that the office is going to be covering. Basically, what it means is that the establishment of these offices, from now on, it will have trained military lawyers that will be evaluating sexual assault cases independently without any involvement of unit commanders. Now, this then is still occurring under the JAG structure. That is to say, the trials aren't happening in the civil courts. They're still happening under military code of justice, but in a different place, as you said, than where the crime originated. Exactly, exactly. This has been years in the making. For years, advocates for sexual assault victims in the military were saying that victims' complaints are not being taken seriously. Because again, there were never an independent body to work through these claims because decisions about whether to investigate those crimes were left up to unit commanders. So now the chain of command is taken out of that process. Right. So they're not simply taken out of the trial process, but they're taken out of deciding whether something is tried in the first place. Correct. So last year, the Secretary of Defense signed a memo. He laid out policies and procedures for these offices. When it comes to command input, the memo says that, and I quote, the commander of any victim of an alleged covered offense and the commander of any accused in a case involving a covered offense will be given a reasonable opportunity to provide input to the special trial counsel regarding case disposition. But that input is not binding on the special trial counsel. The decisions that those prosecutors make are final and binding, meaning that it can be overridden by military commanders. It cannot be. It can't. All right. And give us a sense of what kind of caseloads they expect. How many cases does each office expect to get through? Where are these offices? How many of them are there? What's the structure of this whole new setup? It's going to be branch by branch, but I'll give you an example. The Navy, for example, has a total of 47 attorneys in its offices. That includes 24 certified attorneys and 23 co-chairs. Those co-chairs will assist the lead lawyers, and they do expect to certify those lawyers in the next one or two years. And basically what they said, they will certify, I think, about like six to ten lawyers, and then they will take the rest through the process in the next coming years. And I think they gave like a ballpark of two years. A Navy senior official said that when they were figuring out staffing for the office, 
they basically looked at the cases over the course of five years. And based on those numbers, the expectations is that each certified attorney will be able to handle 50 cases per year. So for example, the Navy expects their busiest offices to be in San Diego and in Norfolk, Virginia. And since those offices are the busiest, they expect the Norfolk office to have 10 attorneys, which means that basically that office will be able to clear around 500 cases each year. The Army said that they expect kind of a similar caseload per each attorney, but in terms of offices, he said that those offices with high volumes of cases may have three attorneys, smaller installations will have one attorney, and if they don't have a high caseload, they will be just kind of sending their attorneys there. Just to be clear, these attorneys will be prosecuting these cases. Yeah, that's correct. And what none of the announcements in each of the services has their own individual announcements of the stand-up of their offices for these special trial councils. None of them say where the defense will come from of the people that are accused because you can't presume they're all guilty because the charges are brought. And that we don't know yet. Fair to say? Yeah, that's fair to say. And what about cases that were already underway in the military chain of command with the officers involved? Will those continue where they were or will they get switched to the new offices? The offices have long been building up to being fully operational and senior leaders don't expect like a lot of cases coming in, but their staff has already been working on the cases that occurred prior to December 28th. Now that the annual defense policy bill is out and it's signed, they have the discretion to exert authority over those prior offenses. It's also going to be a conversation on a case-by-case basis in terms of what cases they decide to exert authority over. I think they might be staying away from the more developed cases. So they basically said that if it's the day before trial, they wouldn't just come in and take over. But those cases that are developing or those cases that are just being reported or that just started, those would be good candidates for them to exert authority over. Yes. And once again, I want to point out, too, as you have reported, this whole gambit was kind of prompted by the sexual assault and rape problem that the military was having, still has, but murder, manslaughter, intimate visual images, kidnapping, as you mentioned, these are all also covered offenses that will be referred to these offices. Yes, this has been a decade-long issue. There has been a lot of back and forth, and complaints have just been growing that victim claim, victims' claims are not being taken seriously. And the move was also kind of propelled by this gruesome case of Vanessa Guillen, and I think that happened in 2020. So that got everything off the dime after a decade of negotiating. But it's still a basically a compromise. I think some of the proponents from Congress wanted the civil courts to take it out of the military entirely. In this case, it's still under the JAG structure, but out of the chain of command at the place of occurrence, which is a big change. It's still it's still a big change because, again, after what happened in 2020, Congress decided to take action and they passed the law in 2021. And now for these legislative changes to be implemented to the Uniform Code of Military Justice, there had to be an executive order. President Biden signed that order. And now we have these changes to the Uniform Code of Military Justice, which is a really big deal. And it's all effective immediately. Yes. 
Federal News Network's Anastasia Obis. Thanks so much. Thank you, Tom. And be sure to check out her story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. As the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency's Chief People Officer, Elizabeth Comstetter sees a focus on people as absolutely crucial to her leadership style. Comstetter joined Shane Canfield, WEPA CEO, to reflect on her years of experience leading in the federal human capital space. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today I'm joined by Dr. Elizabeth Comstetter, Chief People Officer at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Elizabeth, welcome. Thank you. Great to be here. In your current position at CISA, one of your responsibilities is ensuring a people-first culture. Explain what that is and, and what's the role of leadership in creating and shaping that culture? Yes, at CISA, really paramount to our culture is a people-first driven aspect so that we are really looking at how do we accomplish our mission through our people. And in order to do that, we really value our people. We want them to feel empowered and supported and uh, respected, and also that their managers care about them. So well-being is important. Psychological safety in the workplace is important so that all voices and ideas are heard. So I like to call it our North Star. Having a people-first culture really starts with the people in order to get our incredibly difficult mission accomplished. In terms of leadership, which is a great question, I think we all know that culture is really driven by leadership and the, the behaviors that we allow and we uh, you know, uh, reinforce in our leaders. So we really work at making sure that our leaders are bringing out the best in their people every day. So again, that they feel they can bring their voice, especially an opinion that might not go along with the majority of a group, so that we get that diverse perspective, we get those different ideas and experiences and that's really where we find that it's important that leaders are purposefully bringing out their talent on their teams to enable our mission. Yeah, excellent. We're, we're going through a, a culture project at our work. Oh, great. Yeah, it's, um, it's been six months in the making, and it's going really well, but it is work. Yes. And it requires from the top down. So I'm, I'm also involved in that. I hear you. Great. Throughout your career, you've piloted many different talent management programs, including at NASA, the CIA, the FBI, just to name a few, and you have an amazing career. What have you learned or how have you might have changed along the way in creating and leading those programs? Yes, and I, I, I am so honored to have had a career in public service across multiple federal agencies, always in the realm of human resources and workforce performance. And I think because I study organizations and people in them, I've come to realize, particularly in the federal government, that many of our programs are really grounded in the industrial era thinking, that this is organizationally structured in a hierarchy with boxes and lines on charts, uh, with the center being around jobs and what do we need to get this job done in terms of skills and training. And what I found is that we're really not in the industrial era anymore where we would promote the smartest people who knew that work and they would then tell the people on their team how to do things and oversee that work. We're now in a digital era and the information era where work gets done collaboratively across geographic boundaries and certainly across 
org charts. So uh, we like to call it networks um, or hierarchies, and we really need to, again, unleash people so they can find those other people who are working on similar problems or have the right ideas. And so I really like to think of our work now in the talent programs being human-centered. It's more about the user and the experience than about the rules and regulations. So although we have to have rules and regulations, certainly in human resources, is that person experiencing what they need and getting what they need for their role at that time? So not so much on the job, but on the person. So for example, we're recruiting. What's the applicant experiencing? Because if they're not having a good experience with our organization from the time we're recruiting them, they're going to go work for somebody else. Same thing with like first-time supervisors. We know they need certain training, but telling them to sit in a class for one week and then hope a year from now they'll remember what they learned to apply, that's not really human-centered. The human-centered is what do they need when they need it and building modules or or just-in-time training and bringing that to the people, to that user, as they need it. So that's really, I think, the most important focus of talent programs today in this era to enable the workers to be the best they can be in their their roles. Excellent. New thinking. Um, This is always an interesting question. Has there been a time when, as a leader, that you've made a mistake? And what is that? And um, I think most important, what did you take away from that? What did you learn from that? Well, I kind of chuckle because I think as leaders, we have to learn to recognize our mistakes, admit our mistakes, and that they are opportunities to learn. And so uh, I've had to do my own self-reflection on, on making mistakes and when things don't turn out the way that I expected them to. Um, makes me think of a time when I was at the Transportation Security Administration and I was a supervisor. And I was really embroiled with my program. I was the technical leader of it. I understood it. I'd run it for years. And I was making a briefing for a decision that had to be made about this program that was very near and dear to me. And I presented the briefing uh, to one of the very senior people in the agency and I think there are about 20 people in the room. And I had gone through the briefing, answered all the questions, and that leader then said, okay, I'm going to go around the room and get everybody's opinion, and then everybody gets to vote, which kind of set me aback because there were people in that room that didn't have any technical knowledge about my program. She even turned to the executive assistant there, taking notes on the meeting, and said, go ahead, and I want to hear from you. And I realized, in hindsight... I had stopped listening. I had been in transmitting all of my knowledge and what I saw to be the right way, and I was not listening to different perspectives in the room because I didn't think that, I didn't value that they were bringing any kind of input to this particular decision. And it didn't go as I had hoped, and I left very disappointed and was busy blaming the senior leader and how that meeting was conducted, that she let all these people have opinions when they didn't know, in my mind, didn't know what they were talking about. And so um, in reflection on that, I realize, and now as I've moved into more senior leadership positions, I realize that was a mistake, that it actually is really important to listen, especially to people who have different perspectives or at a different point in the career, not just the people who know the program or the technical really well. And so that was a mistake I made, and I realized in my own sense I wasn't listening to 
very different opinions, and I probably should have because I would have learned more about what was needed for this program going forward than just leaving, getting, getting upset that it didn't go a certain way. So I've really practiced active listening. I've practiced making sure there's very different people on um, teams and certainly on committees or councils that we need early careers, people new to the agency, Mm -hmm. people who haven't walked in the shoes of the technical workforce because they're asking questions we need to hear for these programs to be successful. Excellent. Your career in talent management means your work is very closely tied to people. And even your title, chief people officer, what does that mean to you to be a leader in the federal system with that focus? Isn't that a great title? I just love the title chief people officer, and I think it's my dream job, really, to be focused on people and culture and the workforce strategy for the whole agency. And I'm just so excited to be at CISA at this point in time. We're only four years young as an agency, so we're really still creating who we're going to become as an agency and what is our culture and what kind of people and talent do we need to be sure we have to be successful. So it's very exciting for me to be in this role with an intentional focus on culture because it's one of those things, if you leave it to chance and you kind of hope it goes the way you want it to, it probably won't. So by building programs, including leadership development programs, including um, any kind of training and learning and career growth and um, engagement programs and listening programs, that's what's really key for, I think, for our agency and particularly me in this role. Um, I think in the federal government, we got used to doing annual survey, the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey that OPM, Office of Personnel Management, runs every year. So we would do a survey and we'd read it and we'd say, oh, this is the opinion of our people. And then we would do action plans and then we'd roll out certain activities that we would hope would would increase engagement. In this era, you can't do once a year and understand what your employees' experiences are, what they need, what's working well, and what needs to improve. We need active, ongoing listening programs. So one of the things we're doing at CISA is having more pulse surveys, having more focus groups and what we call sensing sessions, expecting our leaders to have office hours where anybody can come and just talk about what's going well, what do they need, how how are things going, Um, because we feel like it is an ongoing need to hear from our people. And I think in this role and over the years of serving, I've also realized there's never a one-size-fits-all. You know, we think certain people need certain things at certain times in their career. There's no one-size-fits-all. Neither can we also customize everything to every individual. So there's got to be a sweet spot in building really great talent programs, but also, like I said, thinking about can we do this in modules? Can we make it a menu? Can we do it just in time as people need it so they can practice the new skill or knowledge in their role? So I think we have such great opportunity, again, with the technology that enables us to really um, focus on how we connect people with their work and their team to get things done in, in very new ways. This is always an interesting question. Is there a figure, either from your personal life, your past, somewhere in history generally, that inspired you, your leadership style, um, how you view leadership? There are many figures who have been very inspirational to me, but there is one that sticks out, and that's my mother, Paula Brownlee, who has been a very inspiring leader to me all my life. And I think because 
first and foremost, she had a strong family and a strong career. And that's something I always wanted. And I saw her first as my mother, but then I also saw her as a leader in her career and in academia, which was her chosen field. But I always knew her family came first. And as I saw how she balanced different family needs with also a a growing and more and more prominent um, career positions in leadership, that she had to balance that. And I think I learned from her that you can have both. You have to you have to focus on different things through your career um, and through your life, but that you don't have to trade one for the other. Um, I've been married, happily married, for 32 years, and I'm a mother of twins who are almost 24 years old. So, and I've had a great career in public service. So, I think that having her as a role model has really helped me um, find my own courage, find my own confidence and find my own voice in how I can prioritize the things that are most important to me so that I can actually balance both family and career. And you're doing it well. You're, Thank you. Uh, having known you now for seven or eight years yeah. um, and work alongside you, uh, your passion is infectious. Thank you. Your uh, intelligence and, and the thoughtfulness with which you approach uh, all of these issues, it's... Uh, It's an honor for you to be here, and thank you for your time. Thank you very much. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO at WEPA, and until next time, have a great day. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.